Esther is a unique book in the Bible in that it doesn't mention God by name, not once. Yet, as is the case throughout history, his presence is clearly felt as he calls on ordinary people to orchestrate extraordinary feats. The story of Esther takes place during the time of King Xerxes, the king of Persia. King Xerxes was a king who had built his kingdom on a mountain of his own pride. He ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, all from his throne of decadence in the palace complex of Susa. In the third year of his reign, Xerxes held a six-month exhibition for all his officials and ministers, including princes, governors, military brass, and the media. During that time, he flaunted the wealth and beauty of his empire to the masses, concluding with a week-long celebration for all those living in the capital. From farmhand to royalty, beggar to VIP, everyone was invited. The party was held in the garden courtyard of the king's extravagant summer home, which was elaborately decorated with the finest cotton curtains, cords made of fine linen, marble columns, and furniture made entirely of gold and silver, all situated atop a mosaic pavement of precious stones. He ordered his guests to drink as much as they pleased and had an army of servants ready to serve royal wine in gold chalices. I mean, this was truly a hedonistic celebration of self, an homage to how grand this braggart king believed himself and his kingdom to be. On the seventh day of the party, a drunken Xerxes ordered seven eunuchs to deliver his wife, Queen Vashti, adorned in her royal crown to parade her beauty as a final act of arrogance to his guests and officials. But Queen Vashti defied all expectations and refused the king's request. Seething with anger, King Xerxes discussed Vashti's disobedience with his closest advisors. These oligarchs feared that the queen's defiance would inspire women everywhere to rise up and rebel against their husbands. For that reason, Vashti was to be made an example of. The king and his advisors conspired to enact a new law, enabling Xerxes to banish Queen Vashti for her transgressions so they could find him a new queen. This time, a woman of obedience that would know her place. This law took effect as letters were translated into every language and sent to the king's 127 provinces. Written between the lines of this decree was the understanding that every woman, regardless of her social position, should be subject to her husband's whims, acknowledging that every man is the master of his own house and whatever he says goes. These were indeed turbulent and troubling times, but God was, as he always is, working. Yeah, can I get a club soda, please? And so as other uh, campuses, Cactus and Northridge join us, why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, uh, we're in a wonderful series that we started last week here looking at the book that you've provided for us in the Old Testament called Esther. And so God, I pray that as we uh, dive into chapter one tonight, that God, you'd uh, give us wisdom and insight into this very, very unique book in the Bible. And Lord, as we match it up against our own lives here in the 21st century and the things that we're going through in our culture and all of that, God, speak to us. 
Give us wisdom and understanding. Help us to grab some nuggets out of this book that might help us in our trust in you and our walk with you. That's my prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we say together, amen. So I think I'm safe in saying that the one thing that almost all Christians could agree on of all different shapes and sizes, no matter what Christianity you might come out of denominationally, one thing that almost all of us agree on other than Jesus is that the world and culture around us can get kind of crazy. I've never met a Christian yet who didn't believe that at some point. And it makes sense that you and I would feel that at times. Because the Bible and our relationship with God calls us to a value system, a level of morality, certain spiritual beliefs, a lifestyle that as we talk about often around here can go against the grain of the culture that we find ourselves in. And the Bible talks about that a lot, that this world is not our home, that it's a fallen world, that people aren't always going to be excited about the spiritual and theological things we believe in. And at times that can create kind of a sandpaper relationship with the fallen culture around us. And so given that understanding and agreement that we would all have, the question I have for you today as we dive into chapter one of this book called Esther is how do you? I want you to personalize it for yourself. So Cactus Northridge, those of you watching online and all of us here at Shea, how do you interface with the crazy upside down culture that we find ourselves here in America in the 21st century? You're saying, what do you mean? Well, how do you respond to the changing socioeconomic landscape in American culture? How do you respond to the obvious moral erosion in our culture today? How do you respond to the increasingly and even bitter partisan divide going on in our culture today? How do you deal with the arrival of secularism that almost every culture watcher uh, notes today has finally come to American culture? You see, these are important questions for followers of Jesus today, how we deal with and respond to the ever-changing and not always good culture around us is critical as our, in our discipleship of following Jesus and even loving the world around us. And so as you're thinking about this for yourself as to how you respond to all the craziness around us, as you're chewing on that, let me fill you in on what is happening here in Esther chapter 1. We just heard a story on it, but let me just uh, cement a few things. Uh, As you might remember, it's about 480 BC, and the Israelites, God's chosen people, have been in exile, now watch this, for four generations. For at least 100 years, they've been in exile from the Holy Land, banished to far-off places in Persia, which, as we saw last week, encompasses the entire modern-day Middle East and beyond. So a very powerful secular nation has overtaken Israel and displaced over a million Jews to the heart of Persia, including Susa, its capital that's mentioned in the book of Esther. It's where modern-day Iran is now. 
And when you look closely at the opening description of what is going on, the story that we heard uh, told to us earlier from chapter one, you will notice when you look closely that the author lays out no less than four key aspects of Persian culture that these dear people of God had to deal with. And, and I put these four aspects here on the whiteboard. I wrote them before our time together today because it's easier just to kind of see it on the whiteboard here. And those four aspects that are contained here in Esther chapter one are secularism that will be seen as in the description of Susa and the provinces in verses one and two, hedonism, which is seen in the king and his materialism and the nation's materialism in verses three through nine, gender dominance, which is seen in the objectification of women that we'll note in verses 10 through 12, and then judicial dysfunction that is seen in the unilateral and unrepealable laws contained in verses 13 through 22. So just simply note this right now, because we'll walk through this in more detail here in just a second, but these are the four themes that lead one to another as the author describes for us the setting uh, that Esther and her compatriots find themselves in as it describes uh, Persia that these Jews had been dispersed to. So let's briefly walk through each one of these so that we clearly understand what the text is saying to us. Notice first that you have secular. Secularism. Secularism. Uh, the story begins by giving us a very general statement uh, that will set up the entire book in verses one and two, and it says this. It says, now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the city of Susa. Now, some of you are thinking right now, well, okay, this is relatively normal entrance into a book in the Bible. It's just giving us the setting and telling us, you know, what's going on historically at that time. And that's true. But what you don't want to miss, because any good Jew who was reading this book 2,500 years ago when it was written would have noted in verses 1 and 2 here, it doesn't mention anything about God. It doesn't mention anything about Israel, the Holy Land, the laws. In other words, it's a completely secular introduction to this biblical book. I mean, it mentions this guy, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. Just real quickly, because some people are going to be thrown by this. In our story, they called him Xerxes. In some of the more modern day translations, like the New International Version, they use the name Xerxes, but the more traditional translations, like the New American Standard and the King James and the ESV, say Ahasuerus. The Hebrew Bible says Ahasuerus. That was the Hebrew name for this king. His Persian name was Xerxes. That's in the extra biblical records. So whether you call him Ahasuerus or Xerxes, it means the same thing. And it says that this king ruled from India to Ethiopia. Fascinating not Israel. <laughs> it says that it mentions the capital here, Susa, and 127 provinces and states. Again, not Jerusalem or the 12 tribes. I simply need you to see, because we're going to move on here right now, that in establishing the setting of this story, there's nothing spiritual at all. 
No holy land, no Israelite kings, no temple, no God's chosen people. It's pure secularism, and that's the point. It's describing the setting that God's people found them in. Now, as you're chewing on that, notice a second description here in chapter 1, and that is hedonism. Hedonism. Some of you don't know what that is, even though you're hedonists. Hedonism <laughs> simply means the love of pleasure. All good Americans, in part, are hedonists. We love pleasure. We love feeling good. And that's a $10 word to describe that. A hedonist is somebody who lives solely for the next feel-good moment. And that's what's being described here. You can read all the detail in verses 3 through 9 on your own. But the Cliff Notes version is essentially this, that as Hashuerus decides to throw a six-month party for all of the Persian elite, where it says, and I quote in verse 4, the king displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty. And then it goes on in verses 5 through 8 uh, to, uh, to tell us that toward the end of these six months, the king then threw an even bigger party for all of Susa, where the gardens were all decked out and the best furniture was dusted off like couches made of gold and silver, and lots of wine was served in these golden goblets. It was like one big episode of the lifestyle of the rich and famous for all of Persia to see, and make no mistake, because we're going to move on right now, it was all about materialism and hedonism. The author here is trying to clue us in on what some of the defining characteristics of Persian culture were, and materialism and hedonism were right up there. Then, notice a third description of Persia in this opening salvo, and this one's kind of sobering, and that is gender dominance through the objectification of women. In verses 10 through 12 of Esther 1, when Ahasuerus, now a little drunk, wants to show off his possessions, he decides that one of his possessions is his beautiful wife, and he wants to show off her as well. And even though she was the queen, he orders her to come in front of all of the uh, elite there and all of the people, and kind of like a, a, on a runway at, at a modeling show, he wants her to, to go down and just show off her beauty to everybody. He wants them to gawk at her. It, it says that he said, bring the queen before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. In a very real sense, Ahasuerus is saying, look at my wife, look at her, ain't she a beauty? You see, people, especially women, and we're going to see this in this book, were objects to Ahasuerus that he took selfish pleasure in. They were not creations of God to be respected or cared for, and so he asserted, asserted dominance over them. And the text makes it clear when Ahasuerus says, uh, I have and what I possess. This was his mindset, and it's sickening, but it was core to Persian culture at that time. So add it all up. You got secularism, you got hedonism built on materialism. You got gender dominance. And then a final description given here that we must not pass by, uh, judicial dysfunction. Judicial dysfunction. Now this one is fascinating, but actually very scary. 
again, in verses 13 through 22 that you can read about on your own later, is a lengthy description on how the king is really ticked off at the queen for not allowing herself to be objectified. Good for the queen. And so after consulting his advisors, who, in verse 13, it says they knew the laws of Persia. Pause on that a sec. Let's interpret what that means. It means that these advisors advisors were fallen, human, sinful men who knew the fallen, human, sinful laws of Persia. That's all that means. And it says that because they knew it, after consulting with them, the king makes a unilateral royal edict in which he says the queen can no longer ever come into his presence and that the queenship should be given to another. And you're saying, well, a king decides he doesn't want the queen anymore and wants somebody else. No, it's more than that. He makes a unilateral, unrepealable edict. It's called a royal edict there in verse 1. It's going to be very important for us later on in our understanding of this book. You see, in that crazy culture, the king could make a law unilaterally, any law he wanted to, but it had one caveat, and that is that he couldn't go back on the law that he made, even if he realized it was a mistake. Once written in, it was always written in. It was called a royal edict. Kind of a crazy system, because once a law was made, It was there forever as long as the Persian Empire would exist. And this idea of a royal edict is going to be important as we move into chapters 2, 3, and 4 as we read about some other royal edicts made. Just remember that they are unrepealable. Once there, they can't be undone. So within this incredibly ludicrous and dysfunctional system of justice, you have these unrepealable laws made by one person, clearly judicial dysfunction. So we're going to move on and accelerate right now, but simply notice that you have a a, a culture built on secularism, hedonism, gender dominance, judicial dysfunction. This is the setup for the whole book of Esther. The entire setting describes the Persian culture of that time about 2,500 years ago. And you and I right now, if we're going to get into this story, need to picture about a million of God's people living in this culture. And it begs the question, how are they to respond to this? What are they to do? How are they to make sense of this? And much of the book of Esther will be about answering that question, how you deal with a secular culture in which God seems very distant within that and what our response should be. Now, before I share with you a wonderful, life-giving, overriding principle that all exiles need to embrace when they find themselves living in a crazy culture that is not their home. Before I do that, I want to address something important that is kind of the elephant in the room at this point. It's something that some of you might be thinking right now or thought of as we went along over the last 10 or 15 minutes, and we need to address it because it's a certain way that many, many Christians think today that needs some adjusting. And here's what's happened to some of you over the last 15 minutes. And that is that when I wrote up on the whiteboard these four themes, secularism, hedonism, 
gender dominance, and judicial dysfunction, your immediate reaction was to say, that's us. That's America today. We're just like the Persians. We're a secular nation, or at least increasingly so, and we're a bunch of hedonists, and we got gender issues, and our laws are kind of crazy, especially things like Roe versus Wade and things like that. We're just like the Persians. And if you thought that at all, it's what quite a few Christians are saying today. And it's not just the Persians. They say that we're America's just like the Babylonians that Daniel had to deal with before the Persians. Or we're just like the Greco-Roman culture that Jesus and the apostles had to deal with after the Persians. In other words, what we do is draw parallels between the exiling nations, whether it be Babylon, Persia, Greece, or Rome, and 21st century American culture. And I'm seeing more and more of this. And it's important that we address it because it's important how we interpret all the stuff we see in the Bible. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three things to think about when it comes to that issue, the parallel between us and the Persians or other exiling nations in the Bible. And the only caveat I'm going to give before I give you these three things is that these are my thoughts on the issue. Give me a head now that you all understand this. I'm not teaching the Bible right now. These are my thoughts. I would add they're really good and cogent thoughts that I'm going to give you right now and that they are well thought out and I think you should incorporate these into your own thinking. But if after thinking about yourselves you differ with me, that's okay. Do not send me any emails. So here is the first thing that I would have you think about, first thought, and that is that American culture today is not as awful as Persian culture back in 480 B.C., I think that's really important. You're going to hear me make a tie here in a few minutes between Persia and our culture today because there is some linking going on there. But when I hear people say, we're just like the Babylonians or we're just like Persia, we're living in Babylon today, I go, that's a bit of an overstatement and quite frankly, an offense to the people who were living at that time. You see, here's how I know this. If you could build a, a, a time machine and bring Daniel from the Babylonian culture, remember him, or Esther and Mordecai from the Persian culture, or Paul the Apostle from the Greco-Roman world, if you could transport them in time to 21st century Scottsdale and have them follow you around for, say, a week, and watch CNN with you and show them all those nasty sitcoms and take them down to ASU and all this stuff, they would say things are really kind of crazy, the culture around you. They would agree with you in that. But if then you said, we're just like your culture back then, they'd slap you silly. They really would. And the reason is, is because Daniel would say, where's the lion's den? I mean, are lions being, are people being thrown to lions and eaten alive for entertainment? Well, it's not that bad, Daniel. Paul the Apostle would say, who's been put in jail recently for preaching the gospel and beaten within an inch of his life? Well, it's not that bad, Paul. And that would be the point, is that these cultures that we're looking at, whether it be the Babylonians, the Persians, or the Greco-Roman culture, were awful, awful cultures that God's people had to function within. And we're going to learn from that. But they would look at us, just so we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and say, in some ways, y'all are pretty blessed. 
and we would have to recognize that. Second thought uh, that maybe helps us adjust our thinking here a little bit, and, and I just hear this one a lot, I, I would submit that the good old days in America were not as good as we might remember them. I'm going to do a whole sermon someday on this that most of you won't like, at least more conservative ones among you, but I hear people say quite often, if we could just get back to the good old days, the way things used to be, you know, Reagan and things like that, and I, I kind of smile to myself because I know American history pretty well, and I'm assuming you mean days that you lived through, and when I hear that, I wonder to myself, which decade of the 1900s are you labeling the good old days. Now, I'm going to admit in a minute that, that, that culture is eroding. I'm not suggesting that. But sometimes we look at some of the decades in the 90s and, and we kind of romanticize them. And I think there's danger in that. Let me explain. Do you mean that, say, 19... Let's go back to 1930. There's probably not anybody here who's, who's over 89 years old. I won't ask you if you are. But let's go back to 1930. Are you suggesting that the decade from 1930 to 1940 were the good old days? I hope not, because those, that was the decade of the, of the Great Depression. And, and people struggled deeply in that. It was an awful and difficult time. Nobody calls that the good old days. So maybe you mean 1940 to 1950. Well, you can't mean that because that was World War II where fascism and tyranny almost overran the Western part of the world. And if it wasn't for leaders like Churchill and others that, that defeated that, I mean, we wouldn't have the world that we have today. So you can't mean a decade in which we lost 500 million U.S. men in war, that that was the good old days. So maybe you mean 1950 to 1960. Now, if there is any decade that somebody would call the good old days, that would be the only one I would submit and even then, I wouldn't call those the good old days, but it was through 1950 to 1960 that America probably had the highest interest in religion and the highest interest in rebuilding a good culture. You might not know this, but it was in the 1950s that we put in God we trust on our coins. It was in the 1950s that we put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And we did that in the face of communism that was pretty godless at that time, or very godless. And so maybe the 1950s, but even then, there'd be a lot about the 50s that, that had some cracks in the foundation. You couldn't mean 1960 to 1970. <laughs> Some of you laugh. You know exactly what I'm talking about. There's no way you ex-hippies are going to call that the good old days. <laughs> Vietnam was awful. The counterculture was a seismic shock to the morality of our country. And though some of you do look fondly on it, it's only because you're sinful. Nobody <laughs> thinks that the 1960s were the glory days, at least on a spiritual level. And by the way, neither the 1970s. Roe v. Wade was one or made popular in, 19, in 1970s. It, it was the time of the me generation, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. Nobody glorifies the 70s. Maybe the 80s. Some people say, you know, the 80s, man, that was the days, you know, Reagan. And I hear that often. And I go, okay, politically for you, maybe. But on a moral level, trust me here, there's nothing to romanticize about the 1980s in America. I got saved in 1981. I grew up, as we'll establish here in a minute, in a rather secular, hedonistic, gender-dominant, judicially functional, dysfunctional household. I did. I grew up in the 1960s and 70s, and, and, and I was as secular as secular could be. And when I got saved, I went from listening to all that decadent, 
70s and 80s rock that some of you still listen to, to, to now trying to repent from all of that. And I'll never forget the day that I listened, to, and I, I'm even embarrassed to mention now, I listened to some of the songs as a new Christian that I used to, to dance to and sing to. Things, songs by ACDC or the Rolling Stones or, or the Jay Giles Band. And, and, and again, I'm an old rocker. And, and, and though I still appreciate some of the old rock, I'm gonna be the first one to tell you there's very little to romanticize in that very decadent, decadent rock culture. I, I, I'm telling you. The 1990s, I don't think anybody would say those were the good old days, at least on a spiritual level. Are, are you seeing my point? I'm not saying, as you'll see in your second here, that culture isn't eroding, but we have to be careful in trying to say, well, let's get back to the good old days, because the good old days, as you'll see here in a second, are the days right now in which you are called to trust in God, walk with Jesus, and stand tall in an upside-down world. Those are the good old days, and our culture rarely sees that. So we're not just like the Persians. The good old days are not as good as we remember them, but here's what I will admit to you and I think this is the point, is that there is moral and spiritual erosion going on in our culture, which allows us a general parallel to Persia. I, I think that is, I know that has happened. Look, I, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s, and let me just say it this way. There is a vast difference between Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch and two and a half men and modern family. It's marked. And anybody who says that our culture is not eroding on a values and even spiritual level does not have their eyes open or doesn't share a value system that we might share. Probably one of the most uh, pronounced things for me, and I guess only a pastor or Christian would feel this, is that whenever I watch a primetime television show today, you know, they're really good, thank, thank the Lord, that they don't use the F word or the S word on primetime today. I'm very thankful for that. But if you notice that on primetime television, they don't mind taking the Lord's name in vain on a regular basis. And every time it happens, I, I have to turn off the, I, I just, I cringe at that. I've asked people around me never to take the Lord's name in vain, never to say GD in front of me. And yet I see it now on TV and Hollywood thinks it's just fine. Don't tell me that there's not an erosion on a spiritual level. There is today. And that's the point is that we do indeed, and this is where we've come to, find ourselves today in an increasingly secular, living for pleasure, gender-confused, judicially dysfunctional culture. And so when we ask the question I asked you up front, how do you respond to this culture we find ourselves in? There is a link to what we see in Esther. There is a link to that secularism and hedonism and gender dominance and judicial dysfunction. We experience that too. Maybe not in a tit-for-tat fashion, but we can learn from this book as we go through it. Now, I wanna wrap up today. We got probably just around 14, 15 minutes. I wanna wrap up today by looking at one primary thing that this book teaches us, one overriding principle that this entire book of Esther is built upon. It's the first response 
Let me repeat that. The first response that any exile should have, and here it is. It's the main point we've been leading up to this whole time. And that is that the book of Esther, especially chapter 1, teaches us that as culture erodes, our trust in God's providence must increase. So it is a tit-for-tat measure. As things go downhill around you, whether it's in the culture around you or even in your own personal life, because we all experience that, what Esther is going to teach us is that our trust in God's providence must increase at least in equal measure. You know, I introduced to you this idea of providence last week. You might remember that we looked at it when we were talking about, talking about navigating divine distance. And though I described God's providence to you last week by comparing it to sovereignty, some of you might have noticed that I didn't actually define it for you. And so let's do that now so that we cement this in our minds and hearts. Providence is defined as God's care, his control, and his guidance of everything which he has made. It's God's care, control, and guidance of everything that he has made. I've adapted this from the Holman Bible Dictionary. In other words, when we say that God is providential, when we talk about his providence, what we mean, now watch this, is that he has a plan, and his plan cannot be thwarted, and everything in this world is moving toward that plan, even the cruddy stuff. What does that do for your soul? That's what we mean by the providence of God. When this word was first given in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, what the Greeks meant by providence, I love this, is to know in advance and plan accordingly. And when we apply that to God, what we're saying is, is that he knows everything that's going to happen in advance, or he wouldn't be God, right? If God doesn't know everything, then he's not God, but he does. And yet what his providence says is that he plans accordingly. He's working everything out in our lives and in the history of this world and in the future according to his will. Maybe these scriptures which describe God's providence will help. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 26. This is powerful. It says, he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, right? So God made every one of us to live on this earth. Now watch this. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Whoa, let that sink in. Where you were born, the exact time in history that it happened, the city that you live in, even the house and the job that you have or don't have, all the appointed times and the boundaries of your habitation, the Bible said, have been determined by God. That's his providence. If you think that's bold, Jesus would say it even bolder. Look at Matthew 10, verses 29 and 31. Jesus is speaking. He says, are not two sparrows, those little birds, are not two sparrows sold for a penny or a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, meaning apart from your father's will. He says, so don't fear because you're more valuable than many sparrows. I'm going to suggest to you in a minute here that the providence of God is the most comforting thing we can ever lean on. (laughs) And here's why. Jesus is linking sparrows to us, 
and the fact that they fall to the ground, now watch this, with the absolute providential will of the Father. Every time a bird falls to the ground, God says, I got that one in my providence. And what Jesus is saying is that every time your life is a mess or you confront a crazy upside down culture, God says, I got that one. At this point, many people ask, well, what about all the bad things? I mean, if God is in such control, how do you explain all the suffering and the crap that I have to go through and that we all have to go through? And that brings us to probably the most poignant and powerful passage on God's providence in all of the Bible. You ready for this? Romans 8, 28. Many of you have read this before. You just never linked it to his providence. It says, and we know that God causes. He is the causal agent. All things to work together for good to those that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Wow. It's telling us here that God takes all things in our lives and he works them together for his purposes and for his good that can become our good. But did you catch the caveat here? To those that love God. So if you don't love God, if you don't believe in him, if you're not anywhere in the realm of faith with him, he says, well, you're going to kind of be on your own, even though my providence is still working there. But if you want to tap into my providential will, what I'm doing on planet Earth, where I'm taking all of this stuff, then trust my providence. And that's the point here, is that these exiles in Persia, go back to Esther now, we're going to see them leaning steadily on the providence of God even when they feel that he can't be seen, even when they feel very distant from him, because that's what this book is about, they're going to lean on the providence of God, even as things get crazier throughout this dramatic story. And what we're also going to see is that God will eventually protect his people and come through for them. He's not going to do everything that they want him to do. I hate it when Christians say that. Well, you know, God's not provident because I don't have a better job. You know, God's not provident because my marriage didn't work. Well, guess what? If, if you talk to a Jew at about 400 BC, after all of these things take place right now, they're still exiles. <laughs> they're still dealing with bad nations, right? Howard, we know the intertestamental period. But guess what? God still protected them. And God drew close to them. And his purposes and his will for them and for this world have continued on. And so why is all of this important? Why does this trust, what does this trust in God's providence do for us, especially in dealing with an upside down world? Just give me all three clicks here right now, guys. Let's let these guys fill in the blank because some of them will have mild anxiety if they go home without all the blanks filled in. So notice here that, uh, that God's providence gives us comfort. God's providence gives us hope. And God's providence gives us strength. If you want to know why it's so important that you and I, and why the book of Esther hammers this theme home of God's providence, his control and care and guidance, even when he seems distant, is because it gives great comfort to our lives. That when we see all the craziness of the culture around us, here's what his providence is designed to do. And some of you think this is so far from your experience right now, but I experience this every day. And that is that when we see the craziness around us, we go like this. It's okay. It's okay. Because though that's crazy, he's in control. And I'm comforted by his providence. 
And then notice that his providence gives us hope. You know how this works? Hope, as I've defined for you guys before, is the ability to look beyond your present circumstances on the horizon to that which is unseen and to be positive. That's hope. And the way providence comes in is that you look on the horizon of your life beyond all the crud going on here right now and what you see, who you see on the horizon is God. And you realize that he is good for his promises, that he is providential. And again, you go, I got hope. Whether you're in a bad marriage, whether you're dealing with runaway kids or or rebellious kids, whether you're dealing with depression, anxiety, we all deal with lots of things this side of heaven. Providence gives us hope that God's got it and your future is gonna be bright. And then God's providence gives strength. When you trust in his providence now, you have strength to persevere. You have strength to not freak out. You have strength to stay the course. In a very real way, the reason that this idea of trusting in God's providence needs to be our first response. Now watch this. Is I want you to think about all the other things that Christians do as a first response to the craziness of culture and how much trouble it gets us in. Probably the number one thing that Christians do today when it comes to the craziness around them is before anything else, have you ever noticed this? They just get mad. They, 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 they watch Fox News or CNN or read the paper or whatever, or get stuck in traffic, and before you know it, they're just fiery mad. And I hate this world and all the things going on. I long for the good old days. Yeah, like World War II. And I, and I want all these things to be back. Da, 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 da. Before you know it, they're all fired up and angry. Man, I deal with angry Christians all week long. And that's why I can, I can imitate them so well. And, uh, <laughs> I do too. And, and so the point is, imagine, however, Just imagine if you're one of those angry Christians, if you backed off the anger and said before that, because there is a time to get mad, I'm not saying that, before that, I'm going to trust deeply in the providence of God. Imagine what that might do to your anger. Or the other response that a lot of Christians have today, and this is kind of anger's bedfellow, is fear. We've got a lot of fearful Christians today. We fear all the things going on, and I get it. There is a lot probably to fear. But again, if you were to teleport Daniel into modern day, or Esther and Mordecai, or Paul the Apostle, they would tell you, one, well, we had a lot more things to fear than you ever do. And secondly, they would say to you, let's all trust in the God who's got this. Because the God who's got this says that perfect love casts out all fear. And that as you trust me, you don't need to fear as much. I want you to think of all the things that we tend to respond to. Mobilization, action, self-protection. Those are not bad things. But what's your first response? Because God says your first response is to trust him and to trust his providence. So how do you respond to the craziness around you? I hope that you learn from Esther 1. And that as you read about a time in which there was rampant secularism, hedonism, gender dominance, messed up laws and judicial system, that those people showed their fortitude by trusting in the God who is behind the scenes, but worthy of our trust. And all I know, if they can do it, so can we. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this great, great book in the Bible that, that, that shows us the way, even in our modern day world, 
Lord, we're not just like Persia. We would never be as audacious to say that, but there sure is a parallel, Lord, and we all feel it. And so, God, I pray that as we even go out here today, tonight, and deal with some of the craziness in this world, I pray, God, that you'd pull us back from some of the initial knee-jerk reactions we might have, whether it be anger, fear, or the other things, and that, God, we would trust in you. And that, Lord, before we do anything else, we would check our heart, check our mind, and say, are we trusting, are we leaning on the providence of God, the fact that you have this, God, and that this is all within your control? Lord, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. We know that. But we also know that that's what faith is about, the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen, as Hebrews 11 says. So, God, may that be the things that we trust in you more than anything else. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.